So I have an acquaintance here in town who in the last few weeks um, lost her brother very suddenly. He got meningitis. He was sort of sick one night. His temperature was higher the next morning. By lunchtime he wasn't looking so good and his partner took him to the hospital and within a few hours he was gone. Really one of those awful things that remind us of how fragile we are. And, you know, the Buddha says, all you really know is that if you've taken an in-breath, there will be an out-breath. You'll notice he doesn't say if you've had an out-breath, there will be an in-breath, because of course there might not be. So that's pretty astounding to think that that's all we can really hold on to. And I talked with her some today and spent some time with her and you know, just the enormous amount of letting go and surrendering that she and her family, he was only 43, I think, 44, something like that. So, you know, his parents are coping with it and it's just big. And I had been thinking a little bit about letting go. And you know, it's so easy, let go, you know. People often say, well, that's really all that the practice is about. It sort of seems like a, a you know, a, a cure-all, that, that if you can just let go, then everything will be fine. And it comes up a lot in Buddhist conversations. And, and often what I then hear, people will say, well, I actually like letting be better. You know, I don't want to talk about letting go, I want to talk about letting be. And it's an interesting question to think about, well, are they really the same thing? You know, is letting be really letting go, or is it part of, you know, is it, is it a process? And um, we have so many, you know, stories about our experience and ideas about how we're supposed to be and, and if we're not thinking about how we're supposed to be, we're thinking about how somebody else ought to be and, and if it's not an external thing, sometimes it's an internal thing, you know, if only my mind were a little quieter, if only my heart were a little more open, if only I were a little kinder. So there's, there's so much judgment. So. I think there's something to be said that the initial piece actually is letting be. It's letting something be just as it is for my friend. It's letting her hugely tragic situation be just what it is, hugely tragic. And nobody wanted it and everybody's upset. Now there's no letting go in there. You know, there's no some way that suddenly it's going to be all right because it's not. It's not. And so it's that very first step of going, oh, it really is awful. I actually, as I'm saying this, I'm remembering an email that I got not too long ago where somebody told me about a very difficult diagnosis that someone they knew had gotten. And this person who was um, working hard at being a, a good practitioner said, well, it's really unpleasant. And I thought, no, it's way worse than unpleasant. 
It's not just an unpleasant mind state or an unpleasant situation. It's really painful and horrible. And so part of the letting be is just acknowledging how absolutely painful something is, how difficult it is to have, you know, the mind state that we have, how much we don't like it that we're inadequate, how much I hate it that I'm grumpy sometimes. You know, all of those things that are true about ourselves and, and sometimes we just have to let them be and acknowledge them. That's actually hugely important when you begin to go, oh, yeah, this is true about me. I was talking with somebody out in the hallway about um, some teaching that I do in another part of the country and the Sangha there is having a bit of difficulty and I said, well, I'm not sure I should go back. This is a conversation you and I were having because I have views about it. And Betsy, who was my teacher in that moment, said, oh, you're the teacher and you have views? And the truth of it is, yeah, I have views sometimes. I have opinions about how things ought to be. And, you know, if I don't even acknowledge them, you know where that goes, right? If you don't acknowledge something like that, pretty soon it comes out sideways and you actually act out of your views and opinions, which is really the problem. So that place where we begin to say, oh, okay, there, my fear. I'm really afraid. I'm really upset. I'm really angry. I'm really angry. Or whatever it is. That, and I think if we skip over that letting be step, because, you know, letting go is super, super advanced practice, actually. So if you skip over the let be part, straight to the let go part, then I think we're actually missing a really important place. But one of my favorite quotes I brought to you tonight is from Jack Kornfield, and it's from an early book of his called, it used to be called Living Buddhist Masters, and all but one of them is now dead. So instead of calling it the mostly dead Buddhist masters, he changed the title to Living Dharma. But I kind of like the mostly dead Buddhist (laughs) masters better. So this is called The Entire Teaching. And I'm reading you actually the entire chapter. He says, I have reserved a whole chapter to make a simple statement. The entire teaching of Buddhism can be summed up in this way. Nothing is worth holding on to. If you let go of everything, objects, concepts, teachers, Buddha, self, senses, memories, life, death, freedom, let go and all suffering will cease. The world will appear in its pristine, self-existing nature and you will experience the freedom of the Buddha. The rest that follows in this book, so this is the first chapter, are useful approaches and techniques for learning to let go. So, you know, that's really saying that all Buddhist teaching, all of those volumes and volumes, all of those many, many suttas are teachings on how to do this extremely difficult practice of letting go. And in another teaching uh, from Ajahn Sumedho that I've carried around in my pocket for many years. He said we should be like an earthworm that knows only two words, let go, let go, let go. 
So I think of this earthworm tunneling along through the dark earth, you know. It's a pretty smart earthworm, it knows two words, but that's the two words, let go, let go, let go. So, you know, to really begin to work with this in our practice, you know, something comes up, we let it be. You know, maybe it's just pain in the body. Can I just let it be what it is? And then can I in some way let go, you know, not be attached to it being different from the way it is or, or not knowing that place where, where we don't know, you know, we're wondering what time is it? How many more minutes? How many more minutes before the bell rings? You know, that leaning on. Now we have our new clock up. So if you're good, you can sneak your head around and, and look and see how many more minutes. So you can get your watch, you know, angled just right. And then you kind of scrunch your eye open a little bit. But it's, a very, it's actually a really interesting place to play with in practice. Can you just go, oh, you know, here's the wanting it to be over. Can you just let it be? Just notice the wanting. And then after you've kind of stayed with it, can you go, can I, all right, what happens if I just let go? You know, if it's six more hours, it's okay. It's never six more hours. But it's an interesting place to begin to, to work with just letting go, letting go, letting go. So the Buddha says, and Jack puts it nicely in there, you know, there's nothing to hold on to. Isn't that amazing? I mean, that list is, is really something. I mean, not objects, not concepts, not teachers, not the Buddha himself, not self, not senses. There's nothing to hold on to. Nothing. And the Buddha says, you know, nothing whatsoever should be clung to. Nothing whatsoever. It's all arising and passing. So fast. So it means that even the skillful states when they arise, even all that kindness and even all that open-heartedness, the minute you go, okay, got it. You know, now I've come to the place where my heart is open and I'm going to, and you close your little fist around it. And of course, what happens? You know, does it last? No, it doesn't last. You know, you don't get to be, or at least I haven't found it, I don't know anybody who has, permanently kind or permanently open-hearted. It's that, that like Rumi says, you know, your, your hand opens and closes and opens and closes. And he says, if it were always opened or always closed, you would be paralyzed. So that opening and closing, arising and passing, it's part of, the nature of things. And, and in talking about how we suffer when we hold on, someone once said, suffering is rope burn. Isn't that wonderful? Suffering, suffering is rope burn. If you hold on and things keep moving, you're going to get rope burn. And any of us have ever had that, you know, it's not, it's not very nice. So, to allow things to be just the way they are and to notice the way they are then allows us to create a skillful response and for whatever that particular moment is and to let go of things being anything in any other way, you know. So 
one other note that I, I wanted to make is that, that we come, in this particular lineage of practice, we come from a long line of monastics. You know, Theravadan Buddhist practice, the Buddhism of Burma and Thailand, which is what Vipassana comes out of, comes out of a renunciate tradition. And so if you're going to be part of a renunciate tradition, it's a part of a tradition whose very deep practice is letting go. And here in the West, you know, we're mixing it up with our Zen friends and our Tibetan friends, and who knows where it's really going to take us. But nonetheless, that example of people who pick their lives up and turn them around and let go of everything and become monks or nuns is very much woven into our practice, even if that's not what any of us are doing as householders. And so um, we don't, any of us practice renunciation in quite that way. But even if you're living by the five precepts, not harming, not taking that which is given, not harming with your sexuality, not harming with your speech, not intoxicating body or mind, that's quite enough letting go. You know, there's a lot of renunciation just in those precepts and not a lot of taking a deep breath and realizing, oh, you know, I have to let go. Jack used to like to tell the story of a friend of his who was thinking that she should pick up her life here in this country, go to Asia, shave her head and become a nun. And she went to talk to uh, one of her teachers who said, don't bother, get married and have a child and you will have all the renunciation you could possibly want. So those of us who are parents know that and if we haven't been parents, we've been children and so we know how much renunciation it took to raise us. And if you're not a parent, there are other ways that we let go of things to take care of each other. It's, it's a huge, huge practice. So I wanted to tell you a story about something that happened to me. As I was coming home from Philadelphia last week, it's a story that makes me very happy. So I had taught for a week at Pendle Hill, which is a big Quaker center outside of Philadelphia. I've taught there for almost 15 years now, usually once or twice a year. And I really like that particular balance of practice. We go to, as part of our Buddhist retreat, every day we go to Quaker meeting. So um, it's a very interesting kind of conversation. It tends to make me pretty happy. I had 30 students and uh, was very intense. Felt like I taught pretty well, actually. But it also was intense. So by the the end of the week, I was really tired. So somebody drove me to the airport, a friend, and she left me. And I walked in with my bags. And you know, they have the kiosks now where you can check in, right? With your electronic ticket and all of that. pulling my boarding pass out of my bag because I'd already checked in online. Coming towards me is this quite tall, 
older black man, quite grizzled, and he says, you don't have to do that. You've already got your boarding pass. Just bring your bags over here. And he got maybe about as far away from me as there. So he's standing there and I'm standing here. And he looks down at me and he sees my pink hair. It wasn't as purple as this at that point. And his face just lit up. You would think I had given him the best present under the Christmas tree ever. And he stopped and he just stared at me with this beaming face. And I looked at him and I said something, I don't know what I said, I said something about all my hair or something like that. And then we both stood there and laughed and beamed at each other. And then he reached over and he put his arms around me and we hugged each other. And then I took my bags and checked in and got on the escalator and went away. And he's still, American Airlines, Philadelphia Airport, it's the place to be. And I, I was so undone and so happy. And it was such a gift, you know. And it was a place where neither of us stayed locked in to who we were in any normal way. My husband said, after I got home, we were talking about it, he said, you know, this, in a way it was kind of risky what he did. I mean, how did he know that you would be okay? And all I could say was, there was such rightness in the moment. It was like hitting the perfect note on a musical instrument that I am sure he knew it was okay. And I knew it was okay. It was just okay, deeply okay. And sort of, you know, a kind of a miracle of sorts. So I think it's those places where we where we don't stay attached to who we are or what the story of any particular moment is or what somebody else is. I mean, when we, that's the place of freedom because that event was an astoundingly free event. And, uh, you know, I felt so gifted. So I think this whole thing about letting be and letting go and practicing, 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 you know, somehow over and over again, letting go of who it is we are and where it is we're going and what it is we're doing and just being open to something new coming in. That's the place. But it takes all that hard work of, Ten more minutes to the sit, I'm going to die. And then, you know, you notice and then you sit with it and then maybe you find some place where you can let go of it. And it seems like pretty ordinary practice and in lots of ways it is, but that's the practice. And whether it's letting go of wanting something or being something or doing something. You know, we all have our places where we have to let go over and over again. That's actually, I think, what opens the door to some kind of freedom. 
So I think I'll stop there and see if there are questions or comments, wonderings. Oh. Oh. Well, you're very welcome. If I can share, if I, have, I mean, I flew across the country quite literally, I think. Yeah. I mean, I did literally fly across the country, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Mm. Ah, Axel. Where can you buy the hair color? <laughs> I can send you to my friend and sell on Aptos. That's all I know. But I believe she gets it. There's a little shop near Trader Joe's that has all different kinds. The Trader Joe's on 41st Avenue has all different kinds of hair color. I think that's where she gets it. Yeah. Let it go. Yeah, I think that's an interesting place. Right. But in, in the situation where you've described it, it's Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Please, Holly. Um, I really appreciate that tonight you addressed both really profound suffering as well as profound joy. Uh huh. It's an interesting thought, though, isn't it? Because when, when I was thinking about t- telling you that story tonight, and, and you know, I mean, at my age, I've heard a lot of stories about people who die, boom, 
You know, they fall over, they go to bed, they don't get up. There's, you know, it's kind of astounding how many people live that way. And so it's, it's almost like, you know, he was ripped out in a way. And, and so now the letting go is, is, is not just the, the letting him go, it's also the, the inner process of letting go. And so I'm beginning to think as I'm listening to you and also just continuing to think that maybe what we're talking about is um, a spectrum, you know, from maybe not not holding not holding on here to full letting go there and somewhere in there there's letting be and there's letting go and you know it is fuzzy it isn't it isn't and i think we move back and forth too you know you, you're able to let go a little and then you go back to holding on and then you you know so you go back and forth on it as well yeah please Uh-huh. And That's nice. I, yeah. I, I really like that because when you know, when I think of letting someone go, like I lost my brother over four years ago now, and I still don't feel that I've let him go. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've definitely let it be mm-hmm. that he's gone. Um, but I guess if, if, if I think of it in the sense that, that John Kabat-Zinn speaks about it. But I'm not so much holding on to him. Like I'm not trying to keep him here on earth, you know, right. let him go wherever he's gone to. Um, but I still hold him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Very much. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. That that I my sense is that that letting go of someone. Who's died? Let's just say is not at all about somehow. Then they're out of your heart and they're gone at all. Um, but it's it's that ease of, I mean, in a sense. Okay, so we're we're creating a better talk at this point. Um, in a sense, it's also about letting go into letting be. So maybe it's maybe we're spiraling this little thing. So maybe that's why it's fuzzy. Yeah, Andrea. I remember we 
brother, actually. But. Uh, a recent conversation with someone where I was talking about the death of my sister, which was many years ago, um, and she was asking me what it was like because I was with her through many, many, many days of and I said, that's her death. And she said, well, what was that last breath like? And I said, you don't know it's the last breath until it's not a thing. Mm-hmm. So to the idea that you could anticipate that this is going to be the last breath, mm-hmm. and that's what you were saying, mm-hmm. there's always an exhale, but there's not always an inhale. Mm-hmm. So it was just an interesting conversation about then you can only in hindsight have a sense of what that last breath mm-hmm. was for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so right. I was having a fascinating conversation about yeah. letting go. Letting, letting be, yeah. Please, Alex. There's, the last few talks have had me thinking about how, first of all, letting go is so, so crucial and, and, and really does intuitively and, and practically seem to be the key, right? Um, but there, there's been this discussion about it being out of a monastic mm-hmm, mm-hmm. tradition, and, um, and there's all potty mocha with, you know, million rules, and, <laughs> right? Right. But then the Buddha said that asceticism doesn't work, and that's not the way. Mm-hmm. And you know, the, the middle way is the the way to be. And so I, I just thought it, it'd be interesting to hear your comments on the, um, the difference, maybe between the renunciate. I, I guess that, that that tradition is kind of a a practice at um, being content with very little. Maybe that's what that's all about. But, it, but I, I see this uh, this interesting mix of, of practicing when renouncing worldly things and at the same time saying, well, but, they, but you don't want to reject and you don't want to... Well, I think, I think it's really important to remember that in the story of the Buddha, anyway, that the early ascetic practices were extreme. And, um, and, you know, eating very little until and the images of him are skeletal and his skin turned black. And it said when you grabbed his stomach, you got his backbone and that kind of thing. So, and he was very close to dying, actually. And so he, when he rejected ascetic practices, he was particularly rejecting those extreme ones that basically denied the needs of the body. But monastic practice, at least in the 2,500 years since the Buddha, has had some, I mean, there are certainly some ascetic practices. The one that comes to mind immediately, because I know people who've done it, is the practice of not ever lying down. One of Bob Stahl's teachers did that, where they sit in a chair and they sleep sitting up, and it's this whole thing about training yourself to be more alert more of the time. 
I guess it doesn't do any huge harm, or his teacher lived to be very old, so. Um, you know, and then, and then quite modest. So there's a lot of renunciation that can be done without it being extreme asceticism, and sometimes it's helpful. Pretty much a number of you have been on retreats. Then you go up to Spirit Rock, or, or come on our, I, mean, I was gonna announce in a few minutes about our retreat over Memorial Day weekend. We don't have the flyer yet, but I'm just sort of wanting people to start thinking about it. Um, so you'll come on a retreat, you know, that you give up certain things just to be there. You're not sleeping in your own bed, you're not eating your own food, you know, you've left this or that at home and you do without it. There is a certain kind of a renunciation and we, certainly when I'm at Spirit Rock, we try to invite people to remember that. You know, maybe you go and you end up being in a double room. You know, that's, that's a big piece of letting go for some people and renunciation and doing it as a kind of practice. Oh, can I let go into this and relax into it even if it's not what I want? It's interesting, yeah. We should stop. But it's juicy, huh? Yeah. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.